And now for our first message, the real Mr. Art Williams. Kind of like being taller. <laughs> decisions part two. In part one of decisions, we reviewed decisions as they relate to daily life, and the definition of wisdom, and why decisions are hard to make, some of the internal conflicts that we run up against and make decisions difficult, and then some of the proverbs related to making wise decisions and some lessons from life. Today we're going to continue with that theme, but first we're going to take a look at how God fits into the picture. Because God is all-powerful, knows all, hears all, is all-knowing. Then if that's true, why in the garden and back in Genesis, after Adam had sinned and Adam went and hid, when God enters the garden, he says, Adam, where are you? Didn't he know where he was? In the book of Job, in the early chapters, God says to Satan, where have you been? Didn't he know? Can we conclude from that that God is not all-powerful? Does God need angels as messengers to carry the messages? Or could he just shout out, Wake up, Larry Whiteley! I don't want you sleeping doing my message. <laughs> the answer is really quite simple. But before we get to the answer, there's one other scripture I want to reference, and that's in Revelation 5, 6. And I behold, held, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Does God need these eyes watching around, you know, looking around the corner? watching people, what's this person doing? And then text messaging back to him what's going on. So he has all this input. Well, the real answer is that God chooses not to know because he wants to work through other beings. Now, God being all-powerful, if we put ourselves in his place, we, have, we know everybody's thoughts. We know what everybody is saying on earth and to the farthest outreaches of the universe. We know it all. What are we going to do with all of that information? Are we going to intervene and say, ah, that's a wrong thought, zap that person's brain. That person's gonna do a wrong thing, freeze him in time and tell him he's doing something wrong. What's he gonna do with all that? If you follow that through, then God becomes a puppet master and everybody else is a puppet. We know about puppet shows. God doesn't want that. He wants to work through other people. And God does intervene to change events. And sometimes he does want to come down, as he did with Sodom and Gomorrah, and see it for himself. Even though from a distance he saw it, he heard it, he knew it, he wanted to experience it. 
for himself. If God had no need or interest in other beings, such as Satan and angels, good or evil, ultimately, why even have man around? In human terms, everything on earth almost becomes a fancy, large, big old video game, and we humans, once we get bored with it, we throw it away and move on to the next entertaining idea. It's kind of a little story about a man that's experiencing a flood. And you've probably all heard this story numerous times. It starts to rain real hard, and and the water's starting to rise. It gets up to the front door, and the guy comes by in a truck and says, Hey, mister, I'll save you. Get in the truck. And the guy says, No, God will save me. A little while later, the water's coming in the front door, and it fills the first floor. And he runs up in the second floor. A guy comes by in a canoe. Hey, mister, come with me. I'll save you. And the guy says, No, God will save me. A little while later, the water's coming in the second floor. He crawls up on the earth. A helicopter comes by and says, I'll save you. Climb the rope ladder. I'm throwing down to you. The guy says, No, I don't need to. God will save me. Floodwaters comes by, the house collapses, washes him away, he dies. Goes up, meets St. Saint Peter at the pearly gates. Why didn't you save me, God? I did. I sent a truck, I sent a canoe, and I sent a helicopter. You know? God works through other people. Or people, I should say, not other people. <laughs> but before we go on, I, I want to interject here what the essence of of religion is because if we look at the first five ten commandments they provide us guidance for the relationship man's relationship with God the second five provide guidance for man's relationship with other men and what's a relationship it's the inner workings or interface between people or men or objects whatever and in the case of God and man what's the inner workings comprised of well, man's conduct and behavior springing from intellect, emotions, genealogy, and other influences that I had already mentioned in previous messages. And later, after baptism, with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we fight the good fight to change the old ways of conduct and behavior. And this involves decision-making, because we are free moral agents, or if we choose to be, immoral agents. And that's how God wants it. That's how he's building his family. A lady in the congregation recently brought it to my recollection, something that happened to me in the mid-70s, um, and she didn't call, bring the incident to, to recollection. She brought a point uh, to my recollection, something that I, I had experienced in the 1970s while attending Worldwide Church of God in Hinsdale, Illinois. I had a perception then in my early 20s that there was something amiss in the messages that were being given in the church, but I couldn't put my finger on it. And it took me five years to figure it out. I finally did come to understand what it was. And it was a point of frustration. But she nailed it perfectly for me, and it, it rekindled my, my thought, my memory on it. And what she said to me is, our messages tell us what to do, but not how to do it. what to do, but not how to do it. Look at the Ten Commandments. They tell us what to do. And we'll get into honor your father and your mother later. How do you do that? We take it kind of for granted, but it can become a, 
complicated situation as life goes on. I didn't find any solutions in the Hinsdale, Illinois church, um, so I came up with my own solution, which was to read uh, voraciously historical biographies of famous people and very difficult decisions that they had to make. Um, you name the famous person, about the only one I didn't read about is probably Genghis Khan. Um, but you name him Napoleon, Washington, Patton, all the great admirals, great war people from World War II, and studied the decisions that they had to make and why they made them and what the risks were that was involved, who they believed and who they didn't believe. And I also took a course in the local university, Understanding Human, human Behavior Psychology 101. Got to help me understand how my brain works, which for a musician is sometimes a mystery. After all, my degree is in engineering, so I think in black and white terms. It's real easy for me. Everything is just described by an equation, isn't it? Of course, people aren't described by an equation. There are, I've heard it said some years ago, that there are no gray areas in the Bible. And this is a, a, a great learning point for decision making, I think. The statement standing by itself without qualification actually isn't true. After all, how many iterations of prophecy do we have? If it was absolute, there wouldn't be so many iterations of prophecy in the future or going back in retrospect. You can look at all the charts that people make. A, this was a prophetic event, that was a prophetic event, and so on. And does the Bible actually contradict itself? I'm going to turn us to a scripture here, Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. Four and, can we get both 4 and 5 up there, Brian, simultaneously? Not at the same time? Okay. For answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou also be like him. And verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly. There you have a conflict. First one says, don't answer a fool. Next one says, answer a fool. An apparent contradiction, and it could be classified as a, a gray area. But if you sit down and meditate on those two scriptures, you will come up with an answer. And I'm going to turn to it in my Bible so I can have them both before me at the same time. Um, and the answer is actually by understanding the last part of that uh, scripture. Answer not a fool according to his folly, and here's the key, lest thou also be like unto him. So the reason you don't answer a fool is because you have to evaluate what you're going to say to him. If you're going to put yourself in agreement with what he's saying and looking like him, then don't answer the next one says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. Well, you answer him because he thinks he's wise. He thinks he is something. And you don't let him get away with that. So from that standpoint, it's not a gray area. But when it comes down to the application, there's a problem. Because the first thing we have to do is decide, is this person a fool? Or is this person just acting foolishly at this time and how long does a person has to act have to act 
foolishly before he is classified as a fool? Or is it more of a condition of the spirit, his heart, his mind? Well, there are at least two definitions of what a fool is. The first one that I'm going to reference would be um, in his heart, a fool says there is no God. That's one definition of a fool. Another one is a fool will accept no correction or instruction or understanding. So before we can actually apply these two scriptures, we have to ascertain who we're dealing with. Second, we must decide how we're going to respond to him and which verse is it that we're actually going to use, verse 4 or verse 5. Some of this is hard to determine if you just met the person a few minutes ago. You almost have to know the person very well or you have to talk with them and find out the answers to some of these questions to make the determination, am I working with a fool here and how do I respond to them? If the better you know a person, you might understand <clears throat> that he is just um, flippantly saying something because he's depressed or uh, angry or something like that and not bringing every thought into captivity and it's kind of running off at the mouth and doesn't really mean what he's saying. So it's a difficult thing to apply because it takes additional understanding of the situation. Consider the source, or don't trust man. How do you do that? How do you not trust men? You ever go to a bank and put your money in a bank? You trust in the bank, or... How do you go through life and avoid trusting men? It's a hard thing to do, because every, just about everything you do involves other people. I'm going to use an illustration here to, to illustrate the point. I'm going to use the illustration of buying a house. The Bible has a lot to say about not going into debt. But if you want to buy a house, how long will it take you to save up the money before you're going to have enough money to buy the house? Can you do it in your lifetime? Or by the time you save up the money, are you going to say, what's the use? What's the use? I, I don't need a new house now. I need a new back, you know. But here's an example. I'll give you some numbers. If you can save $500 a month, or that's $6,000 a year, if you get 3% interest on that, it'll take you 19 years to save $160,000 to pay cash for a house. That means if you're 18, you're 37, 19 years, you'll be 37 years old. If you start... Most people go to college, get out of college when you're 22, Ed, well, 22 and 20, be 44, 43 years old. Is that practical? Well, you have to decide that for yourself because the question before you is, do I listen to the biblical advice and not go into debt or do I go into debt? <clears throat> Most of us don't like to wait 20 or more years to be able to buy a house and especially if we have a family. Don't want to be living in an apartment. But so we go into debt. How much? How much debt is appropriate for you? Well, you young, young people, listen up. 
because being that I'm 63 years old and everybody else that happens to be that age, if you bought a house back in the 1970s and talked to a banker, they would recognize, rec recommend that your purchase price be two to two and a half times your annual income. So if you happen to make $50,000, two and a half times that is a $125,000 house is what they would give you a mortgage for. By the mid-1990s, bankers were recommending four times your annual income. So if you made 50000 now, you can buy a $200,000 house. Yippee, let's go do it. Sign me up right away. One of the lessons of life is consider the source. Who's telling me this and should I believe him? Is this person, person watching out for me or is he watching me come? Is he seeking to line his own pockets with my money? Actually, and in reality, if you go through the numbers and you get your little mortgage calculator book and you, and you look through that, and bankers know this, most people can't afford a house payment on a purchase price that's four times their annual income. <clears throat> now, I'm, the bankers knew it, but they did not care. They did not care if you were even going to default on the loan because they already knew what they were going to do. They were going to package the mortgage up with a bunch of others and sell it off to some other institution. And they'll make their money off the transaction fees of get processing the loan and then off of selling the loan. And they did it not just partly to make money off the fees, but also to be in compliance with the federal mandate that specified quotas on how many subprime mortgages they had to issue. There's a law, federal law. Consider the source. <clears throat> if we can't ascertain for ourselves from looking at the incoming expenses that we have, what we can afford to pay for a house, then we should get advice from an independent source. We get counsel that has no connection with the deal. But truly, the real answer is for you to be, learn how to come to that decision yourself. Because even independent sources can be wrong. And I'll give you an example. When I bought my first house, it was back during the Jimmy Carter times. Mortgage rates were up at 18%. I could assume a variable rate loan three percentage points higher than the current loan. It was 9%. I could assume it for 12 no, not knowing very much about adjustable rates loans, I went to a lawyer and asked him, is this a good idea? Now, I gave the lawyer, handed to him a little pamphlet that said everything about this loan, how it's structured, how it works. Because I thought he would open it up and read it and then peruse it and come back and make some comments. What does he do? He sits it down in his desk and proceeds for the next 42 minutes to tell me, why adjustable rate loans are no good. I would say he had a preconceived idea or some kind of bad experience with him. Well, at that point, I was thinking, well, I'm not going to do the deal then. I called up the real estate agent and I said, let's go back and look at the place again. So he took me back there and I told him, I'm, I'm really concerned about assuming an adjustable rate loan. And the real estate guy says, well, yeah, you could be, but you know, interest rates on mortgage loans is 18%. Nobody can buy right now anyway. They can only do one thing, and that's come down. That's when the light bulb came on. He's right. So the source that I went to to get the advice, the lawyer, who you would think would really know what's going on, was wrong. I bought the house, 
My initial payments were $660. Within two or three years, that was $220, and I was getting letters from the mortgage holder saying, come on in and refinance. We can get you a good rate. <laughs> yeah, a good rate that would cost me $500 a month. <clears throat> While buying a house is probably the largest single purchase the average person makes, it may not be the most difficult. Many of the most difficult decisions that we have to make, and I forgot to put my stopwatch on myself. I don't know when I started. I think I have about 10 minutes. Um, a lot of the most difficult decisions involve people. Now, I want to get back to the commandment. Honor your father and your mother. How do we do this? It's really easy to say, I honor my father and my mother. I, I, we keep their birthday every year. We keep their anniversary every year. And that can be a heartfelt effort. You put in a lot of effort. You make the cake and decorations. And maybe you bring them over to somebody's house so it's a surprise. And you can put a lot of effort into that. But in terms of substance, there's not a lot of substance to that. We can honor our parents with substance by fulfilling their wills, wants, desires. Their desires even for us. My mom wanted me to go to music school, Juilliard School of Music. I didn't want to do that because music to me was a hobby and I didn't, if I made it my profession, it would no longer be a hobby. It would be work. I wanted to go into electronics, which I did. But I didn't fulfill her will in that, in that way. But there's other ways. If you're abiding at home with your parents, house rules. Someday you'll have your house and you can set the house rules. But until that time, hey, babe, you know, that's the way it is. There's chores, there's helping out around the house. All that is part of honoring your parents. But there comes a time, comes a time, and if your parents are elderly or have since passed away, you'll know what I'm referring to. Our parents can become aged and they can't drive. They can't live alone anymore because they're a hazard to themselves. They're a hazard to just being in that house alone. They might, you know, cause a fire, burn the house down, kill themselves. So in some cases, we have to step in and work against their will. And that can be a very difficult situation to take someone you love and care about and cause them consternation, especially if they've lived in a house for 50, 60 years, raised their family and their kids, live there, They're everything they know, all their friends are there or were there, most of them maybe have passed away. And then you're going to take them out of upstate New York and move them to Oklahoma. They really know nobody except immediate family. My mom said she doesn't even remember when my sister asked her, you know, how did you feel about the day we, we left the house in New York? Because my sister said to her, you want to turn around, Mom, and wave goodbye to the house? My mom said, I don't even remember that day. She totally blotted it out. It was too stressful. My dad had a little rehab property uh, down in Pennsylvania. And uh, I went in there to see it because I was living in Illinois at the time. And he had placed in front of the water heater, here's the water heater, he places in front of the water heater, the washer, 
And then in front of it, alongside the washer, he puts the dryer. And the furnace is over here. So now you can't get the water heater out. And I said, Dad, how are you going to get the water heater out when it goes, when it, you know, when it dies? The heating element goes bad or it starts leaking water. I don't have to worry about that. It's not my problem. I'm 75 years old. That water heater's good for 20 years. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. You know whose problem it is. It's mine. But Dad, um, he was good that way. He, I took him two garage door openers. I thought it would be a thing he would be happy with, because he was still out there pulling the garage doors up, over, you know, overhead by himself. I gave him to him. He says, "Well, I guess you think your dad's getting pretty old. Can't even open his garage doors anymore, huh?" No, Dad, that's not actually what I was thinking. What I was thinking was, every person I know in this whole world, nobody opens the garage doors anymore. You're the only one I know. I think, you know, hey, make your life easier. And besides, look at your driveway. It's on a hill, and in the wintertime when it gets icy and snowy, it's better to have the garage doors already open. You can come in there and keep the momentum going, because if you stop on the hill, you slide back down, you might, your life will slide right into the road and get hit by a snowplow. I think he appreciated it. I think he did appreciate it. Because he surprised me later on. I went back. He said, we got to talk. So we go in a private room. He puts two pieces of paper on the desk. His will and the actions I have to take place upon his decease. That's hard. It's hard to talk about it. It's a hard thing to face. And lots of times, we make like an ostrich. We bury our head in the sand in the things <clears throat> because we don't want to face them. I'm 63 years old. God's given me three score and 10. By my math, that's seven more. <laughs> but my mom, she delivered the 89, so she had, a good, she had a good start on her second life. But there's three human responses that we may make to these things. One is denial. It's a defense mechanism. It's a refusal to admit or accept or recognize something that has occurred or is occurring. And it protects us from things we don't want to have to cope with. And this saves us from some anxiety and pain that we otherwise would have. <clears throat> You find that with drug addiction and alcoholism. And there's two others. I'm going to think my half hour is about up here. Um, two others are repression and suppression. Both of these are also defense mechanisms, essentially a derivative of the first. And I won't go any further in, into that, just to, except to say that. So there are a lot of things to learn about how to do with the scriptures. And they're not easy, necessarily, to dig out. It takes uh, some study, some reading, perhaps on subjects you're not familiar with. 
And my purpose today is to get you to think. Think about life, thinking about the words that are in here, and how can I apply them better, more fully. God is on our side. He will guide and direct us. He knows the situation in life. And our big task is to believe him, follow his word, honor him, and love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength.